Paleo Runner podcast is devoted to finding better ways to live, run, train, and eat. I'm your host, Aaron Olson. You can find more information by going to paleorunner.org. If you enjoy the show, please go to iTunes and leave a review. Search for Paleo Runner in iTunes and click Ratings and Reviews. You can also follow me on Facebook.com slash RunPaleo or on Twitter at RunPaleo. I wanted to take a minute to let you know about a product I've been using called 3Fuel. 3Fuel is a sports drink that gives you fat, protein, and carbohydrates to use as a fuel source. Unlike sugary sports drinks, 3Fuel gets absorbed slowly into your bloodstream to give you sustained energy throughout your workout. If you'd like to give it a try, you can get 10% off by using the coupon code 3FOLSON. Go to paleorunner.org and click 3Fuel at the top of the page. If you're listening through the podcast app on iPhone, click the link displayed on the app right now. My guest today is Professor Timothy Noakes. Tim is a medical doctor and exercise scientist who has published numerous journal articles and books, including Lore of Running, Waterlogged, and Challenging Beliefs. This is Tim's second time on the, on the program. Tim, it's great to have you back. Thank you, Aaron. A privilege to be with you again. So, Tim, you know, you have a really interesting background because you wrote the book, The Lore of Running, and you kind of, in that book, you said it's okay to eat a high-carb diet and lots of, uh, lots of fruit and lots of uh, pasta and things like that. How did you get to this point where you suddenly switched your opinion on that? Can you give our listeners a little bit of a background? Yes, indeed, Aaron. What happened was I, it was the night I finished Waterlogged, which had been an epic 30-year production from the day we first des- described or met the first lady who got the condition 30 years ago to writing this book. So it was quite exhausting. I'd spent about two years compiling the book. And the night I finished it, my brain in the middle of the night said, you must get up tomorrow morning at six o'clock and you must go and run and you must stop and you mustn't run for the rest of your life. Mm -hmm. Now, of course, I had been running, but I hadn't been running seriously. And so I went out the next morning at six o'clock with my Garmin and I chose a really flat 5k route around my house in the flattest area I could find. Mm -hmm. And the last bit of the run was up a hill and I went so badly and my heart rate was so high. I said, no, something's got to give. I've got to sort this out. I've got to get fit and healthy as I was once. And I realized the first thing I want to do is lose some weight. So by chance, and life is, you know, by the millimeter. When I got home, I checked my emails and there was an email from advertising this book, which said lose six kilograms in six weeks without hunger. And I said, but I know that's impossible because you have to be hungry (laughs) to lose weight. (laughs) So so I was about to delete it. And then I noticed it was written by uh, Steve Finney and Jeff Volick. And then I said, but I know those guys, they're really serious scientists. We had done studies along the lines that they'd done on low-carb diets years ago. And I said, but these guys are serious scientists. So I looked at the name of the book. I said, well, I'm going to go and find it. So I went straight to our bookshop and they had the last copy and I bought it and I brought it home and I opened it and it said there are 150 studies showing the value of a low-carbohydrate diet, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And so that's, I said, well, and all these are the benefits and particularly if you're insulin resistant or carbohydrate intolerant. So I figured, well, maybe I'm carbohydrate intolerant, so let's give it a go. And, and by lunchtime, I'd said, that's it. And I started, I said, I've eaten my last carbohydrate. <laughs> <laughs> that that, that is quite a coincidence that, that you just happened to see that advertisement in your email. It, it couldn't have, you know, if it had come another day and my mind wasn't ready for it, it wouldn't have worked. Uh-huh. So anyway, I, I had this incredible response. And within six weeks, my running improved profoundly. So from being someone who was really struggling to run and thinking it was just because I was old and run all these marathons, mm-hmm. I felt so much better. And so then I decided, okay, let's give it a go. And I've been on it for three years and I've not looked back. I mean, my health has just improved dramatically over those three years. Mm-hmm. Oh, that that's fascinating. And, you know, I saw when I was uh, doing a little research, I saw that there's an article just published about you and a, a, a medical journal that, uh, an article you published in a medical journal where you document a lot of the people who have written uh, yes. letters to you. Can you tell me a little bit about some of the success stories that you've heard from people? Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's so funny because there's been an outrage in South Africa that I've done public work. Uh-huh. And it's really interesting because there are a whole bunch of reasons ex- explaining it. But this is a series of case reports, which is a medical doctor in a medical journal you're allowed to write. Mm-hmm. And I didn't draw any conclusions other than to say we need a randomized controlled trial of this diet against the standard diet. That's all I said. I didn't say that this proves that the low-carb diet is healthy or beneficial or something. 
But in fact, they aren't, they aren't anecdotes. So everyone said, you see, Noakes is just an anecdotal scientist. He writes anecdotes and claims that they prove, mm. which, is, which is the last thing. They're all paradoxes because mm-hmm. all of them had been doing what they were told to do. They were told to eat a high carbohydrate diet and they got like me and got progressively sicker. And when they changed to a high fat diet, they all improved. And that's a paradox because you're not meant to eat fat to mm-hmm. be healthy. So the key is, and I managed to get 127 paradoxes. In fact, I've got many more. But but let me give you the, the best examples. A guy called Billy Tosh. Now, he, he arrives home in Cape Town. He's been on holiday up country, and he can't fit into the seat, in the economy seat in the airplane. And he's so embarrassed because he overflows into the next seat. And the lady sitting next to him gets very angry, and she harangues him for two hours on the flight. <laughs> so he goes to his doctor that night, and she says, listen, you've got diabetes, and you've got hypertension, and you're going to be dead by tomorrow morning unless you just go to hospital. <laughs> <laughs> so he says, no, I'm not going to hospital. I will solve the problem myself. So he goes home, and he goes on the internet, and he immediately finds something I've written, and he says, that's it. Here's Dr. Noakes saying you can eat lots of fat and lots of protein, and he's describing the diet that I love to eat. I'm going to try it. So he starts, and 28 weeks later, that is seven months later, he loses 83 kilograms, which is times 2.2 is 170 pounds, roughly, a bit more than 170 pounds. So he loses 170 pounds in 28 weeks. He goes back to the doctor and she doesn't recognize him. And of course, she starts crying. Oh, wow. And now he uses this technique whenever his friends who have, they haven't seen him for a year see him. He just goes up to them and starts talking and they haven't a clue who he is. <laughs> <laughs> wow. So that was the one. Another guy lost 73 kilograms and made a big difference to him. But And then there was a doctor who has become a great friend of mine and he had diabetes, obesity, hypertension, high cholesterol, sleep apnea. In other words, he couldn't sleep at night without using a a mask to allow him to breathe. And he had gout. Mm -hmm. And he was 57 year old. And he went to his wife and he said, I'm going to be dead by 65. You better make alternate arrangements for the rest (laughs) of your life, you see. So he also hears me speak. And then he says he's also carbohydrate intolerant. He's going to stop the carbs. He drops 30 kilograms and he cures all those conditions. Every single one of them disappears. And he doesn't need any medication whatsoever anymore. Wow. And so he assumes, he thinks I'm a miracle work. And now, but the point was, of course, he's a doctor under the best specialist care that we have to offer in Cape Town. And he was on medication that was not curing his problem because his problem ultimately was hunger. And he was just, he was always searching for food. And once we took his hunger away and got him off the carbohydrates, his body could heal of all those problems. Mm-hmm. And then, but then there've been a whole lot of sporting examples, but this is the best one because this is a guy who at 37, he's been a good runner in the past. He was at best high school miler and he's got progressively fat. He was always a little overweight and he's got progressively fatter and he's gone from 68 kilograms to 83 kilograms, which is what 180 pounds or so. And so he was pretty lean as a schoolboy, but now he's got fat and his running has deteriorated and he runs one 35 mile race, which he normally runs about five and a half hours and he does six hours and 57 minutes, which means he just breaks the seven hour cutoff mm-hmm. and he's profoundly embarrassed because he's not running anymore. He's just walking and jogging. Right. And in fact, to lose weight, he decides he's going to run nine marathons in nine weeks. And all he does, is he gains six pounds doing that. <laughs> <laughs> he figures maybe but he's running off all those calories tim he should be burning <laughs> gobs of weight that's exactly right so anyway he then he's very skeptical because he knows carbohydrates make you run faster and how can dr noakes say you should not eat carbohydrates mm-hmm. so he says okay i'm going to give dr noakes 120 days and he says for 120 days no alcohol no carbohydrates in the first week he lose two kilograms he says gee you know that's pretty good i couldn't lose two kilograms before And so it goes on, he continues to lose about a kilogram a week. And very quickly, he's 16 kilograms lighter. But most importantly, now his thighs have got thinner and they're not rubbing. So now he can train because <laughs> <laughs> limiting was his thighs always chafing. Oh, man. That's and a great he, story. Oh, go, go ahead. And as he trains, he gets faster and faster and faster. And now he can train at distances he's never really done before. So now he lines up with the same 50, 35 mile race, which he did 657 the year before. Mm-hmm. Now, in South Africa, 
Africa is a cutoff. If you don't do under four hours for that race, in other words, you have to break, run a marathon under three hours, and then you have to run another nine miles in an hour. And those nine miles are straight up a hill and then down the other side of the hill. It's a real tough final nine miles to this race. So you run your marathon in under three hours, and then you've got one hour to run nine miles on, on a really tough course. And so, and to break four hours is considered one of the landmarks if you're sort of the average, better than average runner. Mm-hmm. So he lines up and he says, well, I just broke seven hours last time. I wonder if I can break four hours. In other words, I can improve three hours. And he runs the race and he finishes in three hours, 59 minutes in 208th position. So he drops 7,400 positions. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh wow wow yeah. that's, and so that's now, incredible yeah and so now he's uh he just completely changed his life but it doesn't end there bruce fordice who won the comrades marathon the 90 kilometer or 56 mile race mm-hmm. in south africa which and he's the legend in south africa he also put on weight with age even though he'd run 200 marathons he put on weight and he got slower and slower and slower and eventually decided he must also try this stupid cutting the carbohydrate <laughs> that is not going to work and he drops his time two hours in the marathon but at 56 he drops his time over 5k's from 23 minutes to 17 at altitude now running 17 minutes for five kilometers or just over three miles at 56 is pretty good and then in fact Mm -hmm. he ran the new york city marathon not not last week but a year ago and he was the second finisher in his category 55 and older oh man wow yeah so so that means some of the exciting so the what people don't understand is I'm just reporting cases, and these are terribly important cases because they show in people who are doing what they were told to do, they get better when they're told to do ex- when they do exactly what the opposite of what they were told to do. Yeah, you know, Tim. Now, skeptics of that might say, "Well, you know, I've, I know you've personally written about the power of the brain, and especially yeah. in things like endurance sports." They might say, "Well, that's just a placebo effect. They believe the diet was going to work, and so maybe they cut their calories." What do you say <laughs> to that? Uh, well, all of them will tell you that they lost their hunger. That was the key as I do you know and I mean as I sit here now three years later I don't remember what hunger is anymore it just it just never happens okay and that's the beauty of so what I've learned is that if you want to lose weight and control your weight you have to get rid of hunger because if you're hungry you're never going to control your weight right and that's what this diet does it's as you know it's just amazing in its ability to control your hunger mm-hmm. and do you think do you think that the, the low fat uh, or high fat low carb is it something that can work for anybody or are there some people that need some carbs you know it's really interesting i was watching a, 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 a lecture by jeff volek recently and to me he's the sort of the leading authority in the world because he's done the best studies yeah so he really knows it and and he made a really interesting point he says if you put everyone a low carbohydrate diet they all respond exactly the same way and he said so it's a highly conserved evolutionary adaptation mm-hmm. that humans have that when we are exposed to low carbs we respond the same way and so he says that must have been the the genetic adaptation that we must have been exposed to low carbs most of our lives. But when you expose the same number, the same people to high carbohydrate diets, the response is completely different. There's a small percentage of people who are completely healthy on that. Well, I'm not sure they're completely healthy, but they're outwardly healthy on that diet. But for the majority, I think, and by that I mean 51% or more, mm-hmm. on a high-carbohydrate diet, they're not healthy and their health is, is being damaged. Mm-hmm. So, so to answer your question, the more insulin-resistant you are, the less carbohydrate you can eat in your diet. Okay. And, and for many of us, we become increasingly insulin-resistant as we get older. We become pre-diabetic or we become frankly diabetic. And once you're pre-diabetic, frankly diabetic, your only hope is you've got to cut the carbs to an absolute minimum. Mm. And, and some people with pre-diabetes will reverse it, but and some people with diabetes will reverse it. Um, in my case, I couldn't reverse my diabetes. Maybe in the future I will be able to, but at the moment I'm hanging in there controlling my glucose on, on a very low carbohydrate diet and taking medication and being very cautious, doing everything right, yet I'm still clearly diabetic. Mm-hmm. So my, the tragedy was... I waited too late, and and that's why I'm so vocal about this. Because if at if I'd been 40 and gone to a lecture, and there was Professor Noakes saying, "Listen, guys, if you're 40, you must have your HbA1c measured. You must have your glucose. You must have your insulin measured to see if you're pre-diabetic." I would have had it done, and I would have found that I was pre-diabetic. I would have cut the carbs, and I would have been healthy. Right. And that's the message that that I'm trying to get out. Yeah. 
You know, I had a guest on the show last week who's an advocate of a paleo-style diet, but he says that most people will do best at around 100 to 150 grams of carbs. Do you think that, that it's different for everyone? He says that there's things that the immune system might need to have a few carbs in the diet. Do you agree with that? You know, I'd like to see the evidence for that. I think that there, you know, you just you don't just eat for your immune system. Mm. And once once you're in my state where you can't regulate your glucose easily, glucose is going to be your killer. And it's going to it's damaging your brain all the time. It's damaging your arteries every time your glucose goes up. That's you're getting damaged and you're moving towards dementia and cancer and all those things. Mm-hmm. So for me, you've got to regulate your glucose. If in the cases he explains. The people are, their glucose is well regulated and they can eat 120 grams of carbohydrate and the glucose never goes above six and it's back to five within 30 minutes or an hour, then he's fine. That's absolutely right. They, I would have no problem with them, them eating carbohydrate. But if in eating that 120 grams, they were exposing their bloods to glucose going up above seven millimoles, sorry, I'm using the millimolar values, okay. they're going up to 110, 120, that's not good. Okay. And, and, and in my own case, my immune function is, is just astonishingly good and it never was i haven't had a day of sickness since since three hours in three years and wow. and i had a whole bunch of dis- illnesses which have all disappeared so yeah you know so, do you think that's because of the low carb or is it because of cutting out the grains things like gluten and yeah, yeah, and uh yeah. you know the paleo people say that there's a lot of uh toxins in grains do you think that that could be part of this yeah i, I think you're absolutely right it could well be the gluten and because i i got better immediately i cut the cereals mm-hmm. and, and, and so i and I, you know, I used to have headaches once a, once a week, which I took powerful medication. I've had a headache in three years, and it's and I know that's now the gluten and the gliadin, which is which were causing it from wheat, and I didn't know that at the time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, I had um, Professor Daniel Lieberman on the podcast a few weeks ago, and he came out with a book saying, yeah, that the paleo diet diet is probably really healthy, but it's not sustainable. That you know, we can't feed the world on on a paleo diet. Do you think that's correct? You know, Daniel's a genius, so <laughs> I would hate to say something in conflict to what he says. But, I, but you know, but but so what? That's not really a relevant argument. That doesn't mean to say we must now all eat carbs and die from it. <laughs> we, we have to work out a middle road. But right. let me, I've, one of the people I work with in Cape Town is a lady called Leonie Hubert, who's written a fabulous book. She's gone through South Africa and looked at the hunger. He wrote a fabulous book called The Hunger Season. And she doesn't really agree with that entirely because what we're doing now and a lot of the meat that we kill we we destroy most of the nutrients we kill we take away the offal the guts and the brains and the bone marrow, which the Plains Indians considered the most important part of the animal. Mm-hmm. And we just throw it away. And we have to sort that out. But let me remind you what happened in the United States of America. In the 1700s, you guys had 60 million bison on the plains, and they were in perfect harmony with the plains. What you have today is 40,000 cattle and feedlots being fed by corn that is grown on these in huge, vast estates right. in the Midwest, which is completely unsustainable. Without oil, that that's unsustainable. Mm-hmm. So the, the the corn industry is also unsustainable in the long term because it destroys the environment. It destroys all the, the animal life around that environment. So people have to see it both ways. And I'm a, I've recently met a called, guy called Alan Savory in South Africa who's from Rhodesia or Zimbabwe as I was. And he has a fantastic talk on TEDx where he shows the only way you can sort out deserts is you've got to put large herds onto those desert areas. And they reversed the desertification. And he noticed that in northern Zambia, where, where he lives, it used to be northern Rhodesia, that the areas which are most pristine are kept pristine by the presence of large herds of antelope or cattle. Mm-hmm. And when you have lots of cattle, they break up the soil and they fertilize it. And then that is what you need. And then everything, the environment works properly. The way we do it in the Midwest of the United States, that's not sustainable in the long term. Mm-hmm. So so I'm not sure that Daniel has studied the whole details of it. Okay, yeah. And, and the, maybe he's right, but the answer is grain corn, is, grain is also unsustainable in the long term. Right. So, Tim, there's been a lot of talk in the endurance community lately about ketogenic diets and how that might affect your performance and maybe enhance your, your performance mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. ketones can be used as a, a great fuel for the brain. Are, are you in ketosis right now and, and are you burning those ketones as fuel? And do, what do you think about those thoughts that uh, like Jeff Volok writes about that they yeah. could be great for ultra endurance athletes? 
Oh, I, I think that there's no question that that once an event lasts more than five hours, that fat adapted athletes will be will have a benefit. And the, the further it goes, the better. And I think that that's what he's working is showing with the Western states hundred milers that the winners there are now tending to be much more likely to be on the high fat diet. Mm-hmm. The, the 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 bit of his work that I really like, which is just coming through, and he's discussed it with me. I saw him in in Washington D.C. a few months ago. That when you're in ketosis, you you activate a whole bunch of enzymes that act against oxidative damage in the body. And what he's suggesting is that when you're running on high carbohydrates with the oxygenation of the tissues, you develop oxygen-free radicals and that those cause damage and prevent you from recovering quickly. Whereas if you're ketotic, you in fact have activated the enzymes that clear up that oxidative stress. And so you don't damage yourself. Mm. And I think that's going to be the area. And I know for myself, although I'm 64 and a half, you know, I can train hard most days and recover really quickly. I don't get stiff as I used to. Mm-hmm. And, I, and, and I think there's something in that, that you, you recover more quickly because there's something else going on that on a high carb diet, you're doing some sort of damage that, that, that we don't yet haven't fully identified. So, sorry, to answer my, the question then, I think in a long distance event, if it's over five or six hours, burning fats is going to be advantageous for you. Because if you aren't, you're going to be, have to find the carbohydrates and stuff yourself with carbohydrates. Mm-hmm. Incidentally, just as an aside, Diana Nyad, who swam you know, from, from Cuba to Florida, I advised her and I said, listen, she, she wrote to me. She said, I keep getting nausea in the swim mm-hmm. after about 70 hours or 80 hours. And I said, well, what are you eating? I said, just go back and eat real foods. Don't eat the goose and the rubbish. You don't need it. Just eat real foods. Mm-hmm. And she did. And, and then when she finished, she wrote to me a few days later and she said, thank you very much. Now eating real foods, I didn't get sick. And so again, my point would be is once the event goes over 24 hours, you have to eat real foods during the event, not the, the, the carbohydrate, not the goose, because those goose will make you feel sick ultimately. Right, right. And you know, that goes to a question that I got on Twitter today. I, I tweeted that you'd be on the program and I got a question. It says, I never, <clears throat> I never hydrate or do vi- very little hydration on long runs and especially on race day. Gatorade kills my stomach. What can I do to prepare? <laughs> I thought you'd like that question. <clears throat> Sounds to me like he's preparing perfectly and if he just like water or, or maybe milk, you know, I, I'm not yet into knowing. I drink milk now when I, I don't race longer than half marathons, but but if I did, I would drink milk or coconut oil. Okay. Because it's so easy to digest and it feels fantastic and it, it tastes fantastic or water. And, and if, you, if you're fully fat adapted, you take the fat with you in your fat cells. Yeah. And you just burn it. And as you know, you just get stronger the further you go. Right. So I think that, that, that your person who asked that question is doing very well and they should just stick with the water. And she says, I, I never hydrate on long runs. Do you think that's okay? Well, if, if she was going to have a problem, she already would have had it. So, mm-hmm. so she's so fine bad. to just trust her thirst. Yeah, exactly. And and if she, she she must get thirsty somewhere. You can't run 24 hours and not get thirsty. So sooner or later, she's going to get thirsty. And at that point, she should just take in some water. Right. And, you know, you've you've ran Comrades Marathon, which is a 56-mile uh, running race several times. And what did, did they have uh, carbohydrate replenishment um, on the race course when you were running? <laughs> <laughs> Well, you ask a fabulous question, so I'll tell you the story. So when I ran my first one in 1973, what happened then, you had to get a car to go with you because there was no fluids, nothing available on the course, nothing whatsoever. Really? Okay. You, and you had to have either a motor bicycle or a car, and it was entirely your responsibility. They provided absolutely nothing. <laughs> they ran 56 miles, uh-huh. and, the, and the, you were not allowed to drink for the first 20 kilometers, so the first 13 or 14 miles, nothing was provided. And that's how, so the first two hours you ran and you just knew you weren't going to get a drink. Then you would see your, your guy was helping you. If you were lucky, because now there's a whole bunch of runners, he might not miss you, might miss you. And then you would say, go 10 kilometers or five, eight miles further on. And, uh, and we'll meet you there. And again, the chances of you meeting him was, it was still slim. He may or may not find you. <laughs> so in that race, I think I probably had four or five drinks in the race. Okay. So then, you know, then of course, Noakes knows best, you see. So he tells the, tells the organizers, they don't have a clue. They've got to provide fluids and more carbohydrates and things because we were just getting into the carbohydrates then. Mm-hmm. And uh, so slowly things changed. And by 1981, they then had provided a fluid station every mile. 
So now you had 56 stations by 1981. And 1981 was the first year we had a fluid overload case. So the first oh. year they had, and sorry, and, in, and then they were only giving water. And I, perhaps they were giving Coca-Cola, I can't recall. And then in 1982, by then I decided that carbohydrates were the whole solution and so on and, and worked with Bruce Fordyce and we developed a goo. We were the, it was the first goo global. <laughs> <laughs> and, and he won the race using the goo, you see. So then, therefore, that was the right solution. Right. So, the, so we were the first in the world to start producing these goos and it's still available. It's called FRN for Fordyce, for Bernard Rose, who's a friend of ours, and Noakes, FRN. Okay. That so was the first goo that was available. <laughs> So I was completely accountable for the carbohydrate belief in marathon running. Mm -hmm. So why why do you think it's so hard to get concrete answers in fitness and nutrition? I mean, it, it yeah. seems like you've got some people doing the high carb diet like the Kenyans. You've got some yeah. people doing low carb, some people doing high mileage, some people do low mileage. Uh, how do we get concrete answers and why is it so difficult? It, it's difficult because there's no funding and uh, that that's part of the problem mm -hmm. and the other problem is that the best studies which we're hoping to do now we're going to take fat runners because they're that interesting group you see <laughs> because they're doing lots of exercise and they can't understand why they're not fat not thin mm -hmm. and and like simon gear the guy i told you about who lost 16 kilograms and dropped his marathon time ultra marathon time by three hours they're carbohydrate intolerant and they eat lots of carbohydrates and they get fat. And that's the group we need to target on first. We've got to look at them and say, fine, let's, what ha let's see what happens when you go on a high fat diet or a high carbohydrate diet. And then we will show dramatic improvements in performance in terms of you know, hours in the marathon and, and, and tens of kilograms. And then we will know for at least some pop in the population who are carbohydrate intolerant, eating carbohydrates makes them go slowly and eating fat makes them go fast. Mm -hmm. And, and that's, that would be the first. And so we can identify, okay, fine. There are going to be people who are carbohydrate tolerant and they can t eat their carbs and they'll be fine. And then maybe we should look at them because those we have done those studies in the past. We've looked at healthy people and put them on high fat diets and generally they don't do any better but they by and large don't do worse mm -hmm. and we've never tested them over more than about two hours or three hours in in the laboratory okay and, and that's too short you see you, you've got to go the longer distances but i'm amazed that that very few of them actually do worse which you would <laughs> think don't do worse right yeah. and so so that, that's the point. I think that the Kenyans, I mean, are clearly highly carbohydrate tolerant, at mm -hmm. least when they're young. Mm -hmm. What we don't know, however, is the guys who stayed in Kenya and who didn't make the international teams. Mm -hmm. They could be carbohydrate intolerant and a kilogram too heavy, so they don't make it. Right. And if they cut their carbs, they might improve, but we that we don't know that. Yeah, you know, that that's really interesting that you bring that up. I think um, mm. Nassim Taleb talks about that in Fooled by Randomness, is that you have to look at the graveyard and see what athletes didn't make it. And if yeah. they had tried so something different, you know, uh, maybe they had, maybe they would have done better. We, yeah. we often forget to look at the counter, counterfactual. And yeah. uh, the, the guest I had on last week, Paul Gemini, said that saturated fat is such a good source of energy to use during running that he would love to see the Kenyans try out a slightly higher fat diet and see what happens. <laughs> that'd be, that's, that's, that'd be interesting. That. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I've, I've got another question from Facebook and th this, this person's name is, he goes by the name of, name of Irish runner. He says, what should we eat and drink during an ultra marathon? And he's worried about sodium and electrolyte intake. Mm -hmm. Well, sodium and electrolyte is simple. You don't have to bother about them because your body will sort that out. Mm. And when you're running the marathon, your body is excreting the excess sodium that you took the day before. That's why it's trying to get you into balance. It's the, the poor body is always trying to get rid of this excess sodium. It's always battling to get rid of it. And, and when you go and run and you sweat, it says, thank goodness, <laughs> I'm not getting rid of it in sweat. I don't have to get it out in the urine. And so I can conserve a bit of potassium and so on and so forth. So sweating is a great way of getting rid of the excess sodium in your body. And you most definitely don't need to replace it. And I mean, the, the studies, and I've discussed them in Waterlogged, show mm -hmm. that if you take salt in your water, uh, sorry, in your sports drink, you pass it out in urine in the next 24 hours. And you have to because you're already in, in, in excess. 
Okay. So we, because we evolved on the African savanna and we had too much, we, sorry, we had so little sodium in our diets, we are great sodium conservers. And, and yet now we give ourselves this massive sodium overload and we just don't need it. I don't think it's dangerous. If you're eating a, a moderate or low carbohydrate diet, your blood pressure will normalize because it's carbohydrates that drive blood pressure, not salt. And that's another message that we have to get out. Mm-hmm. So if you're eating an excess salt and you're eating a low carb diet, that's fine. But on the other hand, if you're eating a high carbohydrate diet and you're salt sensitive, salt sensitive, then it's a problem because your blood pressure will be elevated. Okay. So, so the message is simple: you never, never need to take sodium supplementation at all. Even during, say, a hundred miler. No, never. Mm-hmm. Again, the body is only too pleased that you're getting rid of all that excess. Okay. And, and if it senses that you're going to lose too much, it'll just reduce the excretion in your urine. Okay. So, so, the, so the key is when your urinary sodium, when there's no ur- sodium in your urine, then you're deficient, not when there's no sodium in your sweat. Mm-hmm. And that's the error that people made. Okay. I've got another question from Kathy Morgan. She says, I'm running a 5K on Thursday, 10K on Friday, a half on Saturday, and a full on Sunday. And this will be her first race fat adapted. How, how do you recommend she feel for something like that? And she also says, have you heard of a product called UCAN? And what do you think about using it during the race? Great question. Firstly, obviously, she shouldn't be doing these races, but I understand. <laughs> <laughs> so, so just take it calmly and don't try to win the five and the 10, rather try to win the marathon. Mm-hmm. So, you know, focus on the last 10K of the marathon. That's when you can start racing, but you can't start racing the five or the 10 or the half. You race the last six miles, five miles of the marathon. Mm-hmm. And, and she should just eat as her body dictates. So if she's eating high fat diet, her body will tell her, I want more fat now, and then she should eat it. Mm-hmm. And the again, if she's fully fat adapted, having the carbohydrates isn't really going to help, but she doesn't need it. Mm. She must just continue to eat the fats both before and during the races. Mm-hmm. And, and if she's fully adapted, she's fine. The problem is I think some people's livers are not fully adapted and they struggle to produce enough glucose. So ideally, if you wanted to do it scientifically, she should measure her glucose when she's running, the, let's say, the half marathon at half, halfway or six, oh yeah, about at halfway and at the finish mm-hmm. and see what happens to your glucose. And if it's fine, that's fine. And also in the marathon. Too many people start to take carbohydrates because they think their blood glucose is low, but actually she should measure it and see. Mm-hmm. And if it's not low, she doesn't need carbohydrate. Okay. And it's a very simple thing to measure. Right. To, to have one of these glucometers and just to measure your glucose is very simple to do. Yeah, yeah. And have you have you heard about some of these newer products that are out there that they actually contain a starch, but it's very slowly digested? Yeah. What what do you what are you what's your opinion on that? Well, Peter Adia, who has been promoting this, and I think Jeff Ehrlich as well, and and it seems to me it acts almost as if it isn't a carbohydrate. Right. In other words, it doesn't cause insulin secretion, and that's the key. You don't want insulin secretion because that messes up all your metabolism. Mm-hmm. So yes, that's fine. I just don't know how it's being metabolized. So that, that would be the interesting question. Right. And what's, what's happening to it, whether it's actually entering the bloodstream and being used as a carbohydrate. It doesn't make sense to me how it's being used mm-hmm. uh, because it has to appear in the bloodstream as glucose. And as soon as it does that, it should get an insulin response. So I don't know. But again, there are many things we don't understand and don't know. And if we try to explain it on the basis of our standard knowledge, we're usually wrong. So mm-hmm. I have great respect for Peter and, and Jeff. And if they find that it's helpful, then uh, then please go ahead and try it. Mm-hmm. Uh, Tim, I've got another question from Brian McKenzie, and he asks, what are your thoughts on high mileage running? Do you still think it's a good approach? We see Ryan Hall, who seems to keep getting injured, who's America's fastest runner, yet the African runners seem to have careers that last for years. Well, I'm not sure about the latter statement. You know, the Kenyans turn over very quickly, but it might be because there's so much competition at the top level. So I'm talking about the Kenyans in Kenya. Mm -hmm. I don't have the data for the Kenyans in North America. Okay. The professional runners who've made it in a sense and don't have to race every weekend. So, okay. so that that I'm quite happy to accept that the, some of the Kenyans may have very long careers, but they don't all have have long careers. And incidentally, one of the keys to the Kenyans is they rest for two months a year. They go and get fat. You know, they put on a kilogram <laughs> and then call themselves fat. Uh-huh. So they, they, you know, I I remember Mark Allen has always been my my heroic athlete, triathlete who because he was at the top for 14 years. And I asked him, Mark, how did you do it? And he said it was simple. I had two years off, sorry, two months a year completely off, uh-huh. and I had three months of low intensity training at a heart rate below 150 and then i'd had a seven month competitive season 
Okay. And, and I think that's the key. You know, you, you must only train really hard for seven months of the year maximum. Mm-hmm. And you need this two months off and three months gentle training. When I say gentle, I mean it's quite hard, but it's not flat out training. And then you've got a competitive season. Okay. And I think so. I think what happens is that, that people just don't ever give their bodies a chance. They're too scared to stop training right. for two months. And, and that's stupid because your body will recover dramatically during that time. Mm-hmm. So, do you take a recovery period during the year? Oh, yes. I take two months where I cut right back and will, I don't care what I do. You know, I'll run twice a week or three times a week and 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 absolutely not worry at all about training and if i don't i will crash i crash after seven months of training i'll crash okay and i get sore and stiff and if i, I can't run fast anymore and i've got to try, i've got to stop training and now that you're on the the high fat diet you don't gain weight anymore i'm assuming exactly exactly and isn't I, that so, interesting no absolutely i mean i can uh, if oh by the way one other point sorry i've converted from a heel striker to a forefoot striker uh-huh. I'm, I'm not fully forefoot but i'm much better than i ever was in in 40 years running and my calf muscles injury just disappeared and i had them for 40 years and all of a sudden as one of my colleagues said your muscles you're now using the muscles the way they're meant to be used they're meant to be eccentrically loaded and then they contract Mm -hmm. and the only way you can do that is by landing on the front of your foot right so so my injuries are much less i had a bit of strain around the knee for about a year uh, when I adapted and my Achilles tendon struggled a bit, but now they're fine. Mm-hmm. So, so definitely adapting to training. But to come back to your point, so I was injured for a month and I didn't train and my weight went down 0.6 of a kilogram. And, and that wow. was in the past, it would have gone up four or five kilograms. Yeah. Okay. Are you still <laughs> running in the Newtons? Yes, I'm using the Newtons and uh, I don't want to advertise shoes, but I, I'm using the Adidas Balance as well because that gives me just enough cushioning. Okay. And it's quite, it's quite, and I can run on the forefoot of that in that shoe. Okay. okay. But both those shoes I found have been very, the Newton helped me start running in the front of my foot. Okay. So what do you think about the latter part of his question? The idea, what do you think, is high mileage still a good approach? There's been a lot of people yeah. like Mark Sisson who kind of advocate for a lower mileage approach, maybe more interval type training. What do you think? Yeah. What are your thoughts on that? Well, Mark, as I read it, has gone completely against the sort of marathon running argument. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, and and he's living in Malibu and he's on the beach every day. I think I'd also, you know, be do more surfing than running. Yeah. So I think he's in a unique environment. So he's very fortunate. And, and I'm sure there's some thing to it that perhaps there is a certain amount of running that's beneficial mm-hmm. and and a certain amount that is not I think that the the outcome is if you want to be a good runner for five or six years, you do have to do high mileage. And I think you have to go back to what Arthur Lydiard wrote. Mm. And I I think I just tend to think that he had it right on you have to do the high volume training to be successful. Uh, Again, why haven't we had clinical trials where we compare higher mileage runners to guys doing high intensity and and lesser mileage? We, We really don't know. We're still speculating. But just on the history of what people have done, it's very difficult to be competitive in the marathon or further unless you you do a, a, a long base of a lot of high mileage mm-hmm. and you know you've you've written a lot about this idea of the central governor how mm. how does how do you think high mileage helps your brain to adapt to faster running because That's a great it seems the opposite you're if you're doing high yeah. mileage a lot of running is at a slow pace i'm assuming yeah it has to be it's quite mm-hmm. correct uh, and let's take the example i mean of the tour de france cyclists who do go every day and cycle six hours a day you know biologically if you do six hours cycling every day after a couple of weeks you're adapted to it you, there's no more adaptation okay but that's how the body adapts as far as i understand it the biological adaptations occur relatively quickly we could argue it's a week three weeks we could argue it's 10 weeks we could argue it's three months but i mean they do this religiously year after year after year mm-hmm. and i have to think that what's happening is that they're adapting their brains to believe that they can actually do six hours a day of this incredibly demanding sport okay and, and that's what they're stretching mm-hmm. and i think that running is the same that that you're doing the endurance the distance running because you can't train the marathon distance at the pace you eventually run it at right it's impossible so so how do you train for it well i think you do high mileage and you train under when it's difficult because you're a bit sore Mm -hmm. and you learn to do that and and then when you get into the race and it's sore you've been there before Right. I mean, I, I find for myself, you know, if I haven't trained 
and I want to get through a race. I have to just go and do one long run. That's all. Mm-hmm. And and it doesn't matter how slowly I do it, but if I just get out there for two or three hours, that in the run, it's much better. It's much easier. Mm-hmm. And it takes one exposure to a long run to get me ready for a longer run. Okay. Okay. What are your thoughts on strength and conditioning programs for runners? Yeah, I think they're underestimated. I think that there is a component of muscle strength that's important in running. And again, people who have asked, when's a guy going to run under two hours? And the answer is that in two hours, you can only take so many footfalls, only so many steps. Mm-hmm. So if you want to run the marathon under two hours, you've got to run further with the same number of steps. And that means every step has to be more powerful. Every muscle contraction has to be more powerful. And I would argue that the reason no one's running under two hours is because their muscles are not strong enough yet. And okay. how do we get, how they're going to get stronger? I doubt that it's going to happen with gym training, but it's some genetics is going to have to come along and people with stronger muscles need to, to appear in the near future. Mm-hmm. But my point is that I think strength training for, uh, for muscles is important in the lower legs if you want to be a better runner. Mm-hmm. If you've got endless time and you can go and run for two hours a day, go and run for two hours a day. But if you can only run half an hour a day, and and you've got 10 more minutes go and do don't add another 10 minutes running go and do weight training in mm-hmm. the gym three or four times a week and i'll bet that that'll give you more benefit than adding 10 minutes running onto your 30 minutes of running okay so tim i i what what have you learned i mean you've been doing this for the past three years now and and i'd also i'd also like to talk about maybe just as we finish up what you've learned since you first started and what you're working on next well, Aaron, it's a great question because my career as an academic is coming to a close at the end of next year. So I turn 65 at the end of next year. And then in South Africa, we stop work at 65. And so I'm not going to have the same career that I've had in the past where I was running a big department and could choose the research I wanted to do. Mm. And so I have got certain constraints. And I've decided to focus more on the low-carb diets and particularly the health components. At the moment, the research we've been able to raise money for I've decided I wanted to become an expert in liver glucose production because I think that's the first defect that you get in diabetes. And if you want to understand diabetes properly, you have to understand why does the liver continue to produce too much glucose when your glucose concentration in the blood is so high. And we we know, in fact, we only know now because it was shown a few weeks ago that the first defect in diabetes is not that the muscles can't take up glucose. It's that the liver overproduces glucose. So we're setting up a model to, to measure that in people who are adapted to the high-fat diet. And I suspect one of the key adaptations to a high-fat diet is you normalize your blood glucose production. And once you do that, it's very probable there's a whole bunch of other adaptations that become normal. And I'm interested in because diabetics, like myself, are told that we have to eat lots of carbohydrates to keep our blood glucose normal, Mm -hmm. which is bogus. So we (laughs) can't keep it normal because it's already too high. And why would we want to add more carbohydrates? And we know that if you take a diabetic and you put them on a no-carbohydrate diet, their blood glucose control improves dramatically. And that has to tell us that they're going to do better in the long term. So at the moment, we're looking at people eating high-fat diets and have adapted for a year at least on a, on a very high-fat diet. So that, And we're seeing measuring their liver glucose production and their metabolism during exercise and working out now where are they getting the glucose from? Where, where's, where's it being produced from? From protein and fat, obviously, but in what rate and what rates are they producing? And we're going to say, listen, you can put a person on a very low-carbohydrate diet and the liver is fine. It can produce all the glucose you like. So why would you want to feed a diabetic who's already overproducing glucose, more carbohydrate? Mm -hmm. And then I would like to look at diabetics and see if we can normalize glucose production. And if when you normalize glucose production, then the diabetes so-called disappears. Mm. And that would be the next step. And then when we raise 3 million rands, um, which would about be about $300,000, I want to take go and find the, the fat runners and the fat cyclists. By that, I, mean, <laughs> I don't mean fat. I mean that they're a little large, a little chubby, mm-hmm. and start working with them and show that, they, that a high proportion have insulin resistance. And mm-hmm. you see, in my country, our medical students are not taught that there's even a condition called insulin resistance. And you, you have to ask why. I mean, I had a debate last year with the di- leading diabetologist and he said, insulin resistance doesn't exist. And I thought, now, hold on. We've known insulin resistance exists since the 1960s. And you're telling me it doesn't exist. And you're a diabetologist. Hmm. How can you manage these patients? So, so my point would be, I want to show that, let's say, 70 or 80% of fat runners are insulin intolerant, despite the fact that they're running. Mm-hmm. So why? And the answer is because it's a genetic 
genetic disorder. And, and, and see, that's the other argument that in, what we teach in South Africa and perhaps in many medical schools in the in, in United States is that what happens is you get lazy and you get fat and then you get insulin resistance and then you get diabetes. I don't think it's that way at all. I think you have the genes, the abnormal genes like I do because my father had diabetes and I've handed on right to my children. I know that because we've done tests and been able to show it. Mm. So it's gone right through the family. And, and, and so, and I've, for example, now I'm lean, but I'm still profoundly insulin resistant. So it wasn't the leanness. So it wasn't the obesity that was causing my diabetes. I believe it was the genes. You then eat a high carbohydrate diet and you turn the excess carbohydrate into fat. And then eventually you become insulin, you're completely insulin resistant or diabetic. So it's a genetic disorder, which is made worse by a high carbohydrate diet. It's not that you're lazy and gluttonous and you don't exercise and then you get fat. And if you just stop being gluttonous and lazy, we'll reverse the diabetes. I don't think it's that at all. Right. You've, got to, you've got to focus on the carbohydrates, which is what the cause of the problem is. Mm-hmm. And, and, and many people are reluctant to do that because they are fixated on the fact that fat is bad for you. So what if we tell you carbohydrates are bad for you, well, then you're going to start eating fat and that's going to kill you from heart disease. <laughs> so it's a conundrum. How do we get out of it? Yeah. And, and, and I would like to show that, that the real explanation is that this is a genetic disorder, that, that people like myself have a propensity to develop diabetes because we're insulin resistant and we can do all the exercise we like. If you continue to eat a high carbohydrate diet, you will develop diabetes in the long term. Mm-hmm. And are, are you also working on a book? I've, I've heard a cookbook or some type of book that, to kind of showcase uh, the diet that you've been following. I'm so glad you should ask because on July the 4th this year, that's a few months ago, I met with two guys who are chefs and they both endurance athletes. And one of them, David Greer, has done amazing runs. He ran the length of the wall of China. We, the, the first two guys to do it in its entirety. And then eight years ago, he was running in Mongolia. And I don't know quite what the run was. He, he raises money for fa- fabulous uh, charities. But anyway, he's running in Mongolia and he was really struggling. And the Mongolians came up to him and said, listen, if you want to continue on this run, there's only one solution. You have to eat this food. And they handed him pork fat. <laughs> they said, <laughs> you will eat pork fat for the next two months and you will finish the run. Uh-huh. And he ate the pork fat for I don't know how long and he finished the run. And he said, then he realized that fat was what you need for exercise, not carbohydrate. Anyway, <laughs> the story was the two of them came and they said, listen, we've got 140 recipes. We'll put the recipes together. You put the science together and we'll bring in on, on board a nutritionist who will tell us what you should be eating and we put a book together and you won't believe it within three months we had finalized the book and it already the first issue had already been printed Mm. and it arrived in it arrived in cape town tomorrow morning oh fantastic yeah it should be on in this on sale in about 10 days time okay and it's called the real meal revolution and the cover has a cleft hand (laughs) (laughs) sorry a cleft fist Uh holding a knife and a fork and so this is the revolution and <laughs> all red berets and things and red t-shirts. <laughs> this is the revolution has started in South Africa. Oh, that's great. And is that going to be available on Amazon? It will be, yes. And uh, it will definitely be. And also Kalahari.com, which is a local the local distributor in South Africa. And it's not an ebook yet, but it will be becoming in due course. Okay. And, and we're really excited because what happened in the last two weeks, I've been profoundly criticized in the media. There's been a feeding frenzy on Tim Noakes, this <laughs> dreadful scientist who claims all sorts of things and claims miracle cures because of that article in something in Medical Journal. Mm. And, and so we've polarized everyone. You either think Tim Noakes is fantastic or you think he's the biggest fraud that's ever hit South Africa. <laughs> <laughs> and the book is going to come right at the moment when everyone is debating. It's, it's, it's a national oh, true. <laughs> so, fantastic. Yeah. So, so, so what are some of those? What did you have for breakfast and lunch today? Oh, great question. Um, I actually had very little for both. <laughs> oh, really? So are you fasting today? No, 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 that's not true. So what I had for breakfast, because I had to go and give lectures, and we had a, we had some, it was a kind of a TEDx talk. So uh-huh. I got up very early this morning, and I had some cheese and almond butter and butter on a on a thin piece of rye vita, which I which I shouldn't be eating, but I haven't yet got the bread from our new diet, from our new cookbook. Mm. The cookbook there has got the perfect bread, the way you make bread paleo style, and we when we'll be soon doing that. Okay. So anyway, that's what I had for breakfast, and I had nothing for lunch. I came home after the talks, and I had some salmon, which we ate two nights ago with cream cheese and and something else, other very high creamy dish, mm-hmm. and it was just delicious. So that was my cold. Salmon. Salmon was my afternoon 
snack before and then dinner we would have something to the dinner i don't know what we'll have tonight probably eggs eggs and ham i would guess and some and some fantastic vegetables as well mm-hmm. but that's that's typically what i eat and it's almost nothing compared to what <laughs> i used to eat yeah mm-hmm. and you don't have any hunger i never have hunger it's just amazing mm-hmm. uh, and and but when and when i see food i get full so quickly it's just astonishing mm-hmm. if it's nutrient dense food right i just and and i eat one meal a day now right essentially mm-hmm. and it could be breakfast or people ask me out to lunch and then lunch will be my big meal or it could be dinner but generally i prefer mornings or lunchtime because if I have a large meal at night, my glucose control is not so so good the next morning. Okay, okay. Where's the best pe- place for, where people can keep up with what you're doing? Is it is it Twitter? Do you have a blog? Yeah, no, well, we're about to start a website, and it's been planned for February. Okay. So I'm planning to release, and then I will be blogging regularly. Oh, and fantastic. And my goal, my goal will be to provide information, you know, because over the last three years, I've read at least 100 books, at least 100 books on diet, and about 1,000 articles. And the information is all there. It is so overwhelming that most of us should be reducing our carbohydrates. Mm-hmm. And, and the, 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 the counter argument is so weak and not sustained by the evidence. But we just have to get it out there. And that's what the website will be focusing on. Good, solid scientific evidence mm-hmm. from collated from all these good scientists around the world who are doing fabulous work. Mm-hmm. And driving, hoping to drive this paradigm shift, which has to happen. And I think every day it's it's getting closer. And this is an analogy from the Second World War. And it's it's I know it's a British analogy, and, and Americans may not understand it because because you guys were great on the D Day and saved the world from D Day onwards with Eisenhower <laughs> and Patton and so on. Mm-hmm. But what saved us before that was General Montgomery at El, El Alamein, and there were many South Africans at El Alamein. And what happened at El Alamein? He was driven. The whole British forces were driven to this final, this little destination, which had a seaport. And the whole of Rommel's army was surrounding them. And, and, and Montgomery was sent to Al-Alaman. He said, you have to win the war for us. You have to beat Rommel or the British aren't going to win the war. And he sat tight at Al-Alaman. He just sat there waiting, 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 collecting all this information, collecting all the tanks and all the people he needed until he knew he had to win. And on that moment, he then he attacked Rommel and drove Rommel back out of North Africa. And I kind of feel that that's where we are today. Mm. The paleo movement is sitting there with Montco- with Field Marshal Montgomery. We're collecting all this information, mm-hmm. which is incontrovertible. And eventually, it's going to explode <laughs> out, and we're going to drive everyone back into the sea and and recapture recapture science and recapture the world and win the war. Yes, yeah. But it, and we, we it's, we're there. And and people won't understand that it was one battle. It was El, it was Tobruk and El Alamein which turned the the war in the the Allies' favor. And and that we're at that point now. We're about to turn the war in our favor. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, we're there. Well, Tim, exactly. it's been it's been great talking with you today. Um, I really appreciate you taking the time to answer some of these questions and and uh, just uh, share your story about what you've learned. Um, is is there anything before we go that I didn't mention that that you need to tell you know endurance athletes or do we do we pretty much cover everything i think aaron the key is that you must always experiment and uh, bruce ford i said it brilliantly he said you know some people say they've ran the com run the comrades marathon 10 times he says no they ran it once and they just repeated that phase same failure 10 times mm. you know you we're all individuals and you have to read and experiment with yourself and understand the role of your character in determining your outcomes because if you're always overtraining, you will always overtrain, in which case better get a coach to make sure you don't overtrain. Mm. And I'm a classic in that case. I'd, I would do much better with a coach who would tell me not to overtrain. Mm-hmm. So I think that, that the key So best to get people to help you, but for goodness sake, experiment and don't discount anything. There's always a possibility that minor changes will make a difference. Mm-hmm. And, and just keep experimenting. And, and I think the other point is that is that you want to, you know, people want to be, I'm 64, I want to be running at 80 and 90. Mm-hmm. And I started at, I started at 19 or 18, I think it was, and, and I'm still running at 65. And I swear every day, I love my run as much as I did when I, in fact, probably more than I did when I was 18. Mm. And I feel incredibly privileged to be able to run at my age and to enjoy it as much as I do. And I think that people take the long term, you know, take the long 
mm-hmm. I haven't always enjoyed my running as much as I do now, but but I, it's incredibly privileged to. And, and people say, you know, you're such a happy, contented person. And, <laughs> and why is that? And I said, because I found the secret and the secret <laughs> was running. <laughs> and, and I discovered it and it's, running was, ma- I was made to run. And not that I'm a great runner or I'm physically small enough to be a great runner. I'm, I'm big and ungainly, but but it's when I get out there after 5Ks, I'm in heaven. And, and, and I discovered that. And so, so my message is, you know, really enjoy it, experiment, find out what works for you. Mm-hmm. But at the end of the day, the fact that you ran a bad marathon last weekend couldn't be less consequential. Mm-hmm. What is consequential is that you're just enjoying it and that you're still enjoying it at 60 or 70 or 80. That That's the key. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's great advice. And I just want to thank you again. It's been a pleasure speaking with you today, Tim. Thanks, Aaron. And a privilege to chat to you. And thanks for your fabulous questions. And also thanks to your, your listeners for putting together such nice questions. You've been listening to another episode of Paleo Runner Podcast. For more information, go to paleorunner.org. Thanks for listening.